this morning. We're starting a new series in James. In James, if you're new to the Bible, that's in the New Testament. James chapter 1. We're going to read the first eight verses. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And I'll tell you, I, I think that camera back there got saved about seven times in the last six months because it's just been me and the camera. We're just preaching, talking to Jesus, and I'm glad to have some people in the room. I know Sister Leslie's going to be backing me up here. We got, some, we got some people in the house. It's great. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear the reading of God's Word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Amen. Amen. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, we are so grateful this morning to be together whether it's online or in person, uh, we're grateful that you are with us. You promise as we gather together as your people, you show up in our midst. And so, Lord, as we look to your scriptures now for the next few moments, we pray that you, by your spirit, would speak to us. You would speak in your word to our hearts that are troubled, that are challenged, that are discouraged, or maybe proud in in our arrogance. Wherever we may be this morning, God, I pray that your spirit would speak clearly to us and change us. Give us new life where there's deadness. Give us hope where there's despair. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the first place I look is always the couch. Now, I don't know about you, but there's this phenomenon in our house that I think is pretty common for many households, and it's we can never seem to find the TV remote. I don't know what it is, but, but probably the most common question in our household is, where is the remote? I mean, it's always this hunt. Of, it might be in a drawer somewhere. It might be in someone's bedroom for who knows why. It might be in the kitchen, but it's usually in the couch or in one of the chairs. And somehow it slips under the cushion and you start pulling the couch apart and you find the remote. But in our house, at least until recently... It was always a strange hunt because you would go looking for the TV remote and you might find the wrong remote. We had this old TV, or older, it wasn't old, but older TV that had a remote that looked very similar. And when we got rid of the TV, for some reason we kept the remote. And I don't know why, but that remote is always the one I find when I go looking for the remote. And so I'm looking for it, I find it, what I think is the remote, and I try to turn on the TV and it doesn't work. It doesn't turn it on, it doesn't change the channel, it doesn't change the volume, it doesn't do anything, yet it seems to still float around our house. It's completely useless, it doesn't work, yet I keep it. I think it happens a lot in our life, actually. You think about uh, maybe at your house you've got tools that you don't use anymore, tools that, you know, you've got a better tool now, or, or it doesn't work, but you still never got rid of it, and so you've got this accumulation over the years of tools that really you don't use. 
Or maybe in your closet, you've got clothes that don't fit anymore or clothes that are out of style and you don't even like them and yet you keep it. You've got this closet full of clothes that you don't know why you have them. You only wear the same five or six things, but you have them. Or you have, you know, uh, you know whatever. You, you go to a garage sale. How about that? You go to a garage sale and you take someone else's junk that didn't work for them and now you bring it into your house and it doesn't work for you and yet you keep it. I mean, you see how we do that all the time? It's this, this phenomenon. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, uh, you know, our cult of consumerism where we decide, you know, we have to have more because more equals better. Or maybe it just makes us feel good to have something rather than having nothing. I, I don't know what it is, but we tend to hold on to things that are useless. And I think the same thing happens in the church. I would say in our American-branded Christianity we have the same problem of holding on to things that don't work. In particular, we hold on to a faith that doesn't work. We have a faith, many of us in this room maybe, have a faith that doesn't work in our struggling marriage. We have a faith that doesn't work in our relationships with our friends. We have a faith that doesn't work in our parenting. We have a faith that doesn't really work in our politics. We have a faith that doesn't work in, in the way we, we relate to those that are different than us. We have a faith that, that doesn't really work, yet we hold on to it. And then, well, because it doesn't seem to work, what you see today, I believe, in the American church is many people are leaving the faith that they thought they had because it didn't work. They're on a search for something that works, something that will change my life, something that actually does something for me. And here, as we start this new series, I believe James is giving us a vision for a faith that really works. A faith that isn't just something you hold on to because you feel like you have to have something, but a faith that you really put to work. And so we begin this new series on James, and many of you might be new to the Bible, and you're asking, who is this person, James? Well, James was actually the half-brother of Jesus, right? James is this leader in the church. He was actually the pastor of, of the Jerusalem church. You know, you may call it the, the New Jerusalem Missionary Baptist Church. Like, this was a big church. Some of y'all got that. If you're from the black church, you know there's got to be one New Jerusalem Missionary Baptist Church somewhere. But, but that's James. He's the pastor in Jerusalem, and, and he's well-known. He's one of the pillars of the early church, and he writes this letter to the, to the Christians abroad. And he writes this letter, and, and it becomes one of the most uh, controversial, but also beloved letters in the whole New Testament. Controversial because it seems as if there might be some things in here that challenge our assumptions about grace, but also incredibly practical memorable, clear, precise. I mean, James is such an incredible author in how he summarizes the faith. And, and it might seem odd as we go through this book that one of the strange things about James's letter is he actually only mentions Jesus's name twice. Once in the greeting, right? So in the greeting, the rest of the book only mentions Jesus by name once. But you'll see as we go through this and you see this brother of Jesus, he, he has soaked up the words and the wisdom of Jesus. And, and you'll begin to see that there's so many parallels between Jesus' ministry and what James calls us to. You see that the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached with such power and, and conviction and changing lives that it's actually so rooted in this letter. 
And what we see is James paints this picture of a faith in Jesus that actually works, one that changes our life. And so he begins his letter talking about how faith, how, how the gospel works in our troubles. And so I'm titling this text with, with a borrowed phrase from the late John Lewis, good trouble, good trouble. And so if you're taking notes, let's first begin with the problem of trials, the problem of trials. Look at verse 2 as we jump in. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now what's interesting here is James, he tells us in his greeting that he is writing to what he calls the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now this, this is a phrase that most scholars believe is, is representing people who used to live in Israel, used to live in Jerusalem, and have now been dispersed because of persecution. And what happens is after they leave their, their hometown in Jerusalem, they go out and they find out there's more persecution out there. And so they're experiencing trials, as he says, of various kinds. Physical trials, emotional trials, spiritual, you know, trials of so many different variations. He says, but in all of these trials, he says, this is what you are to expect. He says, when, right? Not if, he says, when you face trials. In other words, he's normalizing it. He's saying trials are normal and expected for the Christian. When you chose to follow Jesus, Jesus invited you to pick up a cross. When you chose to name the name of Christ, you chose to enter into a life of trouble. But here's what's odd about James's opening line. This is great. Just know how hard this is as a pastor, right? James is writing this letter, says hi. The very next thing out of his mouth is count it all joy. All? James, what in the world are you talking about? All that we're going through? Count it joy when we can't pay our rent? Count it joy when, we're, when, when our life is falling apart? Count it joy when we've lost a loved one? Count it joy when people are accusing us of things? Count it joy all the time? Yes, but watch what he says. He says, count it, right? The Greek term there behind that phrase, count it, actually means, get this, take control or dominate. To take control or dominate, let me paraphrase it for you. Grab hold of your mind and tell your mind what to think. Grab hold of your heart, dominate your heart with thoughts that are different. In other words, James is telling us how to think, not how to feel. He's not, and when he says count it all joy, listen to me carefully, he's not denying the feelings that you might be feeling as you're going through what you're going through. He's not saying the loss isn't painful. He's not saying the marriage isn't hurtful. He's not saying that what you're experiencing is beyond maybe what you feel like you can bear. It's overwhelming, it's, it's exhausting. And He's not saying those things aren't true. He's saying... That might be true, but it's not reliable. He's saying your trial, listen, your trial is an invitation. It's an opportunity to think differently. So uh, in 1958, there was a man named Chairman Mao, who was the leader of Communist China at the time, and he ordered the extermination of every sparrow in China. Sounds odd, but it was part of this, uh, this campaign they had called the Four Pests Campaign. And they were trying to get rid of these pests, the sparrows, the flies, the mosquitoes, the rats were the four pests that they were getting rid of. And, and it was so rampant, like the, the campaign was such a quote unquote success that 
People were killing sparrows across China by the thousands. Little children were sent out to try to ruin their nests, and they were trying to, I mean, they were banging pots and pans together to keep them flying so that they would literally die of exhaustion. I mean, everybody in China was trying to kill sparrows, and it was so successful that within just a year, they almost exterminated the entire population of sparrows. But here's what they didn't realize. Sparrows are the natural predator to locusts. And as the sparrow population went down, the locust population skyrocketed. And within three years, after nearly eliminating every sparrow in China, they had the great Chinese famine. Because the locusts now swarmed across all of their crops and ate up all their food supply. And in three years, over 20 million people starved to death. It turns out, those pests were indispensable. It turns out what they thought by ridding their life of inconveniences and difficulties ended up being worse. And listen, we all do it, right? We, we try to get rid of everything that makes us uncomfortable. We try to get rid of everything that causes pain. I don't know about you, but I've never gone to the grocery store and chose the longest line. I mean, when you're driving and you come up to a red light, you are trying to find which lane is going to get you through the light quickest. I mean, we hate waiting. We hate things that cause us pain. We hate things that bring us discomfort. And so we'll save up enough money, even if it seems like we're being stingy and we're not being generous. But really, you never know what's going to happen. So I need to have this big pile of money that's sitting there in case something happens because it makes me feel just a little bit better. Right? We all do it, and, and in some sense, that's, that's not necessarily bad. I'm, I'm not saying that the Bible talks about us being masochists, which means you're seeking out suffering. You're, you're some kind of twisted person who just enjoys pain in life. That's not the biblical worldview. That's not what he's calling us to. Suffering will find you out on its own, trust me. You don't have to seek it. But what he's saying is that there is this tendency... There's this tendency within us as human beings, and I think particularly in the American church, where comfort is king. Comfort becomes the highest priority, and then everything else falls in underneath it. And so if my relationship makes me uncomfortable, I'm out. If my finances make me uncomfortable, I'm out. If my church makes me uncomfortable, I'm out. You see what I'm saying? And what happens is what it reveals is our idol is really this idol of happiness. It's because the happiness that we hope for is really different than the joy that we were made for. Happiness, get this, is a feeling. And you choose, or you can't choose your feelings. Feelings, by nature, happen to you. So happiness is something that happens to you, right? You feel happy because you got the promotion at work that you were working hard on. You feel sad because your boyfriend dumped you. You feel angry because there's persistent ignorance about injustice. You feel something because what's happening to you is causing you to feel something, and, and that's okay, that's good. God has designed you for your feelings. God, God is a God who feels. God is a God who feels the, the breadth of emotions. And so God has created us to feel those things, and he wants us to, to engage with that. And, and James is clearly not telling you, don't feel what you feel. He's not telling you, pretend and put your happy face on and, and you know, act like everything is wonderful. That's not what he's saying. 
what he's saying is joy is something different. Joy, listen, joy is a choice. Joy, follow this for a second. Joy is a choice because happiness is received. Joy is counted. Happiness is externally triggered. Joy is internally cultivated. Some of y'all don't know when to shout. That, that was the moment right there. <laughs> what, what does that mean? That means that the things happening to you may affect you emotionally, and that's all right. That, that is part of being a human being that feels. But there's something that God wants to do in you that's greater than what's happening to you. And so what happens is in the midst of confusion, you choose to count it joy. In the midst of the loss, you choose to count it joy. In the midst of the pain, you choose to count it joy. Not because of what's happening to you. That may be wrong. That may be evil. That may be confusing. It may be hard. But what God wants to do in you is greater. And this is where James gives us great insight, where he, he helps us see it's, it's not the good in the trouble. It's what God does through the trouble that makes it good. And so he moves on to our purpose. He says, as we count it all joy, he helps us see the purpose in our trials. This is the next point, the purpose of trials. Look at verse 3. He says, for you know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, or, or, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this is beautiful because James is echoing what many scholars believe is, is a common uh, uh, advice, if you will, a common way of looking at your suffering in the early church because it's echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament. You see it with different authors. Paul in Romans 5 says, says it this way. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And then Peter says it again in 1 Peter 1. He says, you have been grieved by various trials, sound familiar? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in glory. In glory. It's this beautiful imagery in the New Testament of, of testing. And what, what he's talking about here, the testing that he's, that he's speaking about, is not testing to see if you have faith. This is not some kind of cruel testing to measure if what you believe is real. The kind of testing that he's talking about is not if you have faith, but the faith you have becoming greater. Let me, let me help you out with the word here. The testing that he's talking about comes from the imagery of what gold would go through as it's purified. So the testing is not to prove your faith, it's to purify it. And, and this is what's amazing to me in this text is he says to let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, James is saying, he's saying, uh, this doesn't happen automatically. He's saying you have to be willing to put your faith, what faith you have, into the fire of testing to be purified. That it may have its full effect, that it may become whole, as he says here, lacking nothing, be, be complete, be, be in a full shalom, if you'll use the Hebrew. It's, it's this sense of wholeness, but that only happens when you endure. It only happens when you put it into the fire and let it have its effect. Sanctification, to put it another way, happens through long-suffering. 
through long suffering. Many of us remember in elementary school, uh, you know, where, where we studied the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. If you missed that lesson somehow in elementary school, you can go on YouTube, you can watch a video, catch up. But the butterfly, newsflash, becomes, or the, uh, the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. And the way that happens is at the end of the process, while the caterpillar is in the cocoon, having this transformation happen, is right at the end, while the new wings are being formed, you'll see the caterpillar begin to push on the outside of the cocoon, begin to like rub its, win- or its wings up against the, uh, the walls of the cocoon and trying to get out and struggling to get out. And it's been done in tests that people will try to let the, the caterpillar out early. You know, it'll see it struggling to get out. And, and if you open up the cocoon too early, thinking that you're trying to help, right? Thinking that you're letting the caterpillar out of the struggle so they can get out and fly and be free, right? What happens is that little caterpillar, now quasi-butterfly, not fully formed, tries to fly and can't fly and very shortly dies. Why? Because there's something powerful that happens in the struggle. There's something powerful in the formation of its wings that that needs struggle to become stronger. And and this is what, what, what James is saying happens in our suffering, that there's something in suffering that can only happen in suffering. And what we try to do in our pride and our arrogance is speed it up or just completely ignore it. And when what happens is in our pride and in our impatience with results, we begin to put requirements on God that end up hurting us. See, our our impatience, we start putting results on God and timelines on God. And God, I've been praying for this to change in my life for so long. And why haven't you changed this? Why haven't you changed my heart that seems discontent? Why, why haven't you changed my marriage and how me and my spouse communicate? Why, why haven't you changed the injustice in our community? God, why haven't you changed what's going on in the school system? Why, why aren't you doing this, God? And we start to get angry and we start to get you know, feisty with God. And it's really our impatience with God's timing and God's purpose and the way he likes to work through suffering. And let me tell you, one thing I've learned and continue to learn every day is that God loves to take his time. I don't know why, but it seems obvious. I mean, think about it. God took six days to create the universe when he could have done it in a moment. God made a promise to Adam in the garden after the first sin and decided to wait thousands of years to fulfill that promise. God waited 400 years to liberate Israel from Egypt. God came to earth in the form of man in Jesus Christ and waited 33 years to die on the cross. God waited three days in the grave until he was resurrected. He seems to love to take his time, and I hate when he takes his time. I hate the way he works. And some of us in this room, you got to start being honest about that and, and start lamenting maybe to God before you can start trusting him is, I don't like the way you do things. But if you look back 
and you see kind of this chain reaction that James is talking about, that Paul talked about, that Peter talked about. These are men who later in their life, they begin to look back and they saw God working through what they hated. I think you'll see him. I think if you look back on your life and you look at some of the most painful things you've been through, you'll see some of the greatest work God has done. That you needed that. You needed that pain and that trial and that hurt to form you into the person that God was helping you become. That there was no other way. You, you would have not become the person you are if it wasn't through suffering. If it wasn't through trial, if it wasn't through testing, that God had to put you into that to help you come out the way he wanted you to come out. And this is what really requires faith. And this is where James goes lastly, is, is this slow process requires so much patience and trust that it requires prayer. We find hope in prayer. And this is the last part, the, the prayer of trials. Look at what James says. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, trials and confusion tend to travel together, right? When you're going through hard times, that's often when people start to ask hard questions. You start to wonder, why is this happening? What's going on? And I don't know what to do next. And, and James realizes that. He realizes that there's a, there's a desperate need for wisdom when you're in the midst of the test. And wisdom, just to let, let you know, wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is knowing things. Wisdom is doing things, right? It's, it's the right application of truth. And so he's saying, if you lack that, if, if you lack knowing what to do and how to live out the truth you believe, you ask God and you, you ask him to give you wisdom to do that. And God gives generously, but then he throws this curveball. He says, but don't ask, doubt it. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've read that so many times and, and I've heard people read that and talk about that and and there's this sense that people either are honest and say, I don't know, I've, I've never prayed a prayer without doubt. I, I don't know what you're talking about. How, how can that be possible? Or you, you just pretend, you know, and you, you kind of get yourself up into this faith frenzy and you're, you're naming it and claiming it. You're declaring and decreeing and you're saying this is going to happen and you're pretending like nothing else is going on. That is not what James is talking about. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not about what you feel or even what you say, it's about what's true. And so James, watch carefully what he's saying, he then compares it to the wave that is tossed and thrown around in the wind, right? What he's saying is, is there's this, this fluctuation that happens that, that he describes here as double-minded. The, the better translation is double-souled is the word he used. In other words, you have two souls. You, you've given your soul to two different things. You have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. You have one foot trusting God and one foot with a backup plan. You got one foot saying, I trust God, this is going to work and he's going to move in this and he's going to help me and he's going to do whatever he wants to do through all this. And then you've got maybe an easier way if it doesn't work out. You got a way that, you know, if, if things don't work out with the way God wants to work, I'm going to go this direction. And James is saying, there's this divided loyalties, and you need to choose. A couple months ago, my family, we went on a canoeing trip uh, up in Georgia, in the mountains of Georgia, and 
we had never been canoeing with our daughters, and, and they loved it. It was a blast. It was beautiful down this river and peaceful, two-hour ride. They were amazingly well-behaved. I don't know how that happens in a canoe by yourself for two hours, but it was great. And so by the end, we're just enjoying it and didn't realize it was time to get out. So we come to the exit, and we're on the wrong side of the river. We realize on the right side is where we're supposed to get out. So we cut across this fast-moving river, trying to get at the last minute where we're supposed to go. And we kind of crash one canoe into the bank, and the other canoe crashes into that canoe. And I'm holding on to both with two feet, like this. One foot in my canoe, the other foot in Nikki's canoe. And I tell the girls, okay, I don't know how long this is going to last, but you got, you got to get out. we got to figure out, I don't know, what, you know what's going to happen. So the girls get out, and then as Nikki's about to get out, her canoe starts to drift a little bit, and my feet start to spread. <laughs> and I realize where this is going quickly. So I had to make a choice. Where do I jump? I don't know if it's the right choice, but I chose my wife over my children <laughs> as they're on the bank... I jumped into Nikki's canoe, and our children waved goodbye as we floated down the river. Now, thankfully, there were other people around, and they weren't by themselves, and we crashed into the bank down the you know, river, and, and we got out, and they were fine. But I had to choose. It, it was this decision moment. I couldn't keep both feet in different canoes. And James is saying that when you're in the midst of the trial, he's saying you have to come back to the character of God, the truth of who God is and how he works, and choose truth. He's saying you have to choose truth. You have to jump in two feet into the truth of who God is and say, I know who he is, even though I can't understand what he's doing. He's the anchor in the winds and the waves. He is generous. He is good. He is wise. He is enough. He is enduring. He is loving. He is kind. It's trusting what's true about him rather than the trouble that's happening to us. Because listen, it's, it's not about your strength of faith. It's the object of your faith. It's the God that you're putting your trust in, not, not your ability to trust him. And so you put your trust in him because listen, he went first. He went first into every, every trial, every tribulation that you're going to walk into. He went first. Jesus, when he comes from heaven to earth, right? He comes and he jumps two feet in, into the suffering, into the pain. He went first in the trials of various kinds. He went first into oppression. He went first into betrayal. He went first into poverty. He went first into sadness. He went first into accusations. He went first into confusion. He went first into temptation. He went first in every single way, yet not waiting on us, leading us. Leading us not to fail, but leading us to victory. Victory in his suffering. Victory in our suffering. Victory in our sin. He went first into the greatest trial ever endured, the cross that he hung on. He went first with a crown of thorns. He went first with nails in his hands. He went first with, with lashes on his back into the depths of the grave. And so we put our faith in God who went first. He didn't abandon us. He's right there with us. It may not make sense right now. It may not seem like there's a way out. It may not uh, even be enjoyable. It, it may not be anything you thought it would be or expected. But you can know what's true is it's good. 
You can know what's true as it's good because He is good. As the psalmist says, we, we know that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. In the trouble, goodness. In the pain, goodness. In the loss, goodness. In every single thing. In all things. Goodness. We count it joy. And so, do you need to trust Jesus this morning with whatever trouble you have? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's trouble in your marriage. It's trouble with a relationship. It's, it's trouble in your finances. It's trouble with this pandemic. It's trouble in our community. I don't know what it is, but for you, there might be something that has pushed you beyond what you're able to bear, and God is saying, give it to me. Jesus is calling us to himself and saying, I am true. I am the anchor in the wind and the waves. Stop flopping around. Trust me. Jump in both feet. I've gone before you. I love you. I'm good. I'm wise. I'm enough. Come to me. That's his call for us this morning, that we would walk with him as he leads us through the trouble. Let's go to him now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you offer yourself. You are the wisdom of God. You are, as Paul says, the unexpected foolishness of God. What we consider to be foolishness, that you would come and not destroy all of our suffering in the moment, but you would leave much of it behind. You would come and make promises of the kingdom to come and seemingly fail as you died at the hands of injustice. You came and gave us a vision for what could be and called us to heaven and yet left behind a church in the world. And so God, we, we are amazed at your wisdom that is beyond our understanding. We are amazed that what we think is foolishness is what's best. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom from above, not wisdom from our own hearts or wisdom from the world or wisdom that seems to make sense, but you would supernaturally, by your Spirit, give us wisdom. God, we beg you, there are people today who are going through trials that we don't have answers for. Trials that we struggle to hope for. So we pray, knowing that you are good and that what is true is that you work good into our lives through whatever the trouble may be. We ask that you do it today to your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.